I was banging on the front door and my husband didn't wake up. So I walked around. We lived in a townhouse and I walked around to the back and we have a deck that was up kind of high and had no stairs. For some reason, when they built this deck, there was no way to get up to it. So I found a ladder outside and I put the ladder up against the deck and I climbed up the deck and threw myself over the railing. Our bedroom was still up one more flight. So I was looking for something to throw at the window to get my husband's attention to wake him up. And my stepson was there in the house, sleeping in the house. And I was terrified I was going to wake him up. I was quite embarrassed about what was going on. And I I tried throwing my purse up at the window, but it, it didn't hit it with the right force. So I looked around for something to throw and I saw a grill. I grabbed some charcoal briquettes and I was throwing them up at the window until finally I saw my husband's face. And When he came down and opened that sliding glass door and let me in, I'll never forget his face. Like he just looked like so disappointed in me. And I was like, I'm sorry. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober Podcast, episode 123. If you're a new listener, then a big welcome to you. Don't forget to follow this podcast so you don't miss an episode. My name is Janet Goron. I'm founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last six years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. Now, many of those people discovered Tribe Sober via our workshops. Over the years, our workshops have evolved from in-person workshops to Zoom workshops. And now we've launched a brand new online version. It's perfect for people in tricky time zones or people who like to work through content alone rather than in a group setting. The course is called Kickstart Your Sober Life and it was launched on the 5th of August. It's going to be available at a special launch price until midnight tonight. That's the 13th of August. So why not go to tribesober.com and take a look? You can also get a PDF called 10 Steps to Kickstart Your Sober Life, which is essentially a summary of the Kickstart course content. So just email me at janet at tribesober.com and I'll send you one right away. And if you're listening to this way after the release date, then just go to tribesober.com and look for the Kickstart course. My guest this week is author Lisa Bennett. After a career in marketing, she ditched the booze in her early 50s, left her job and wrote a book about the joys of sobriety. Her book is called Unfurling and emphasises how many aspects of our lives will change when we stop using alcohol to numb out our feelings and our dreams. Lisa lives in Maryland with her husband, her mom, two cats and a dog. 
She enjoys paddleboarding, yoga and dancing in the kitchen. I asked Lisa to introduce herself. Well, thanks, Jana, for having me here today. I'm really excited to be on the podcast. Uh, my name's Lisa Bennett. I live in the U.S. I live in the state of Maryland. Uh, my husband and I live here on a lake. It's beautiful where we live. Totally love where I am. My 82-year-old mother lives with us. She has, she has a lot of health issues, so I used to work full-time in communications and marketing, but when my mom went on dialysis about four years ago, I couldn't work full-time anymore, and I actually tried working part-time, and that didn't really work either. So I'm currently not employed in any way that pays me, but I am trying to make a go of it as a writer. I just published, self-published my first book. So in, I'm excited. Indeed you have. And uh, yes. I've, I very much enjoyed reading it. I, I read it in a whole afternoon, actually. I couldn't put it down. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's great because uh, it's, uh, it's a good story. You know, it keeps you engaged. But there, there's so much wisdom and so many insights in there. So I do, you know, congratulate you on that. So let, I'm, I'm just going to pick a few points out of the, the book mm -hmm. to elaborate your, your story. So you were, like me, actually, a rather enthusiastic drinker from a relatively young age. Yes. And, and you said something that I thought was so true. You said the first six years of drinking in high school and college formed pathways in my brain. And I think exactly that happened to me. And I know why I drank a lot at college, but, but why do you think, why did you drink so much at college during those six years? Part of the reason that I started, and I talk about this in the book, is that I was a late bloomer. I always felt like I was behind my friends and behind everyone else in my grade in school. I was shy, and alcohol came around right when I needed it to help me, you know, break out of my shell and talk to boys. So my friends and I just started going to parties in high school. And then when we got to college, suddenly, your parents aren't around anymore and everything's right there in the immediate area. You don't have to drive very much. I describe it as an Olympic training ground for, for drinking. I mean, it really is. I believe I could have done so much better in college if I hadn't been partying. I was just so excited to be free and on my own. Unfortunately, alcohol became very much tied with that. Yeah, I, I think it, it happens to so many of us, doesn't it? It's like a double whammy, that freedom, and then the booze is there, and it, and you want to, you know, fit in with your, your friends. But yeah, mm. I noticed that kind of uh, note of sadness in your book, because you were studying creative writing, I think, weren't you? Yes. And uh, you mm. felt that your, your writing wasn't nourished as much as it could have been if there wasn't quite so much partying. <laughs> I describe in the book, I, I signed up to write for the school newspaper and I wrote exactly one article. And the next article I was supposed to write was I was supposed to go to an event and then write about it the next day. And it was on Halloween and I wanted to go out and party with my friends. So even though the newspaper had bought me tickets to go to this event to review it, I didn't go. And then the next day I went into the newspaper and I apologized that I hadn't gone. And I said, I quit. And that was, that was my illustrious journalism career in college. And I never wrote for the literary magazine. 
I really didn't prepare myself for what I thought was the career that I wanted, which was writing. Well, never mind. You're catching up with it now. It's, it's, it's never too late. Writing is a lovely thing to do as you get older anyway, I think. Yes, definitely. So those pathways that you formed in those six years, they set the scene really, didn't they, for the next three decades. So just talk to us a little bit about how that drinking habit evolved over the years, you know, through your sure. 20s, 30s and 40s. Sure. So I, I grew up in Florida and I myself and all of my friends made the decision to move to New York City after we graduated college. And New York is another place where when you live right in the heart of the city, you don't have to have a car, you don't have to drive, you can go out and drink and pour yourself into a cab and, and go home. So it was another, I lived in New York City for seven and a half years. And so it was another lengthy chunk of time where I was just, you know, drinking three, four times a week, often as much as I could drink in a single night. I was 29 when I left New York, and I would say that it was a very well-established habit by then. I was never an everyday drinker. I was never even a huge fan of like morning or day drinking, um, unless maybe my friends and I were out to brunch. But the three or four nights a week that I did drink, I drank usually at least a bottle of wine, and then maybe I would hit up my husband's beer and have a couple beers after that bottle of wine. It was really hard for me to stop at just two or three. I mean, yeah, but so many of us, we, we always say we don't have an off switch, you know, it has mm -hmm. to be all or nothing. <laughs> yeah, I, I so I, I struggled for years. I wondered, did I have a problem? And then I describe in the book one time I had to go to an AA meeting not for myself, I'm going to volunteer for a suicide hotline. And they asked us to go to an AA meeting. And I went and I was listening to these people's stories. And I was like, oh, this is not me. Like, I'm, I'm fine. But what did I do on my way home? I bought a six pack of beer to celebrate the fact that I wasn't an alcoholic. I continued to struggle in my mind for decades. You know, do I have a problem? Should I try to moderate? And I and I did over the years try moderating. I tried all kinds of rules that I know a lot of us do this. We make up rules and we break them immediately. <laughs> it's a challenge. It took me a really long time to even contemplate, yeah, I might have to quit altogether. Yeah, it, it takes a while, doesn't it? What you mentioned about the AA meeting there, it made me smile because exactly the same thing happened to me. Uh, I actually went along because I was worried about myself, you know, rather mm -hmm. than researching. I sat there and I listened to these stories, you know, it was mostly guys where the meetings that I went to and, you know, how they they'd got divorced and they'd lost their homes and their job. It seemed really kind of dark and serious and waking up in the morning and having drinks. And I thought, well, I'm not like that. I mean, I was on one bottle of wine a night, sometimes a bit more, you know, if I went out. But I certainly wasn't in their league at all. So foolishly, I just thought, like you, you know, oh, I'm fine. I'm not like these guys. But someone said to me the other day something very wise, one of my podcast guests. He said, you shouldn't compare yourself with this uh, stigmatized alcoholic, you know, the guy on the park bench, you know, that's homeless. Don't compare yourself with him and say that you're okay. 
compare yourself with the very best person that you could be without alcohol. And I thought that was so wise, you know, because why why do we look at the worst scenario and think, oh, I'm fine, you know, I can keep going until I hit rock bottom, you know, why don't we just stop digging now? So uh, I think that's, I think many people have this AA experience, don't they? That's so true. I mean, that's one of the main messages that I hope people get out of my book is that you don't have to be hospitalized or get fired from your job or lose custody of your children. Like you don't have to hit a big rock bottom in order to benefit from quitting drinking. I mean, I, I feel like I've benefited so much and I'm glad I didn't wait any longer. Yeah, 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 me too. Uh, and I had uh, plenty of wake-up calls, the the final one I listened to, a lot of them I ignored. You wrote about one of your wake-up calls, and it was quite a story, wasn't it? Getting on a train <laughs> with a, a walking, talking blackout, basically, yes. and throwing charcoal at the window. Talk us through that. It's, it was a, a sure. great story. Yeah, that was kind of a pivotal moment. And yet, like you said, I still went, I think, another like four or five years before I yeah, quit yeah. after that moment. And yet it felt very pivotal. I had hit my mid-40s, I think, and suddenly I couldn't predict anymore how quickly I would get drunk, how much it would take to get drunk. And I was out with some people from work, and we had had kind of a rough summer at work. So we had been out drinking, sitting outside, outside of a restaurant um, in the summertime, drinking a lot that summer. And then all of a sudden, it was fall, and we were out one night, and I remember lifting that third beer to my lips and I hadn't eaten anything. So I was just starting my third beer and I remember thinking, wow, I am really buzzed. And that was the last coherent thought I had. Next thing I knew, because I used to work in Washington, DC, and I used to take the train all the way out to the last stop where I lived. And next thing I knew I was on the train. We were almost at my stop. I don't remember walking to the train station. I don't know if anybody walked me there. I had no clue. And I used to park my car at the garage there. And I went to get my keys out of my purse. I shouldn't have been driving home anyway, but I went to get my keys out of my purse and they weren't there. And I I immediately knew that someone must have taken my keys from me before I went home. So I got in a cab and I got home. And by that point, it was kind of late. And I was banging on the front door and my husband didn't wake up. So I walked around. We lived in a townhouse and I walked around to the back and we have a deck that was up kind of high and had no stairs. For some reason, when they built this deck, there was no way to get up to it. So I found a ladder outside and I put the ladder up against the deck and I climbed up the deck and threw myself over the railing. Our bedroom was still up one more flight. So I was looking for something to throw at the window to get my husband's attention to wake him up. And my stepson was there in the house, sleeping in the house. And I was terrified I was going to wake him up. I was quite embarrassed about what was going on. And I I tried throwing my purse up at the window, but it, it didn't hit it with the right force. So I looked around for something to throw and I saw a grill. I grabbed some charcoal briquettes and I was throwing them up at the window until finally I saw my husband's face. And when he came down and opened that sliding glass door and let me in, I'll never forget his face. Like he just looked like so disappointed in me. And I was like, I'm sorry. The next morning I had to run out there real early and clean up the charcoal because I didn't want my stepson to get up and maybe walk out on the deck and say, what the heck is all this charcoal doing all over the deck? Quite a story. We put ourselves in such danger as well, <sighs> don't we? I mean, I'm thinking of yeah. you, you know, obviously pretty drunk, climbing a ladder. 
I mean, mm-hmm. I remember when I was in a blackout, basically falling down a long flight of stairs, and I could have easily broken oh my, my neck. But we certainly put ourselves at a lot of risk and in a lot of danger. And of course, there was your story about the cab driver and you could have been assaulted there. Yeah, yeah. Narrow escapes, narrow escapes. Uh, I think the tolerance issue is very interesting as well, because Mm -hmm. I had that towards the end of my my drinking. Uh, I found that I could sometimes drink two bottles of wine and not feel anything. Mm -hmm. And then another day, I would have one glass of wine and I'd feel really buzzed. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a real sign, isn't it? There must be things shifting inside that, that affect your tolerance. So if anyone's listening that's going through that, then I really think it's it's a bit of a sign. It is. And I, you know, after that experience, that was the one time I created a rule for myself that I followed. And I set a rule that if I was going to be out drinking and I had to get myself home, I was, you know, the only person responsible for getting myself home, that I was only allowed to have two drinks and I had to eat something. And I I set that rule and I, I kept it for the rest of the time that I continued working in Washington, D.C. I was really ashamed of having that complete empty period in my mind, not remembering someone taking my keys. Like, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of shame, isn't there? Especially for us women in the drinking and what happens when we're drinking. And I often say that as a woman with the the alcohol issue, we have to almost walk a tightrope because Mm -hmm. uh, if we don't drink, we're not fun. And if we get drunk and fall over like you and me uh, used to mm-hmm. do that's not cool either so right. you know we're supposed to get it just right and that is very difficult for for most of us certainly once we've crossed the line with it yeah so you got to the point where you say in in your book that the joy of drinking had withered and you realized it was costing you far more than it was delivering i thought that was that was very clever of you to work <laughs> that out while you were still drinking because certainly many of us, you know, now that we've given up and talked to so many other people that have given up, we all realize that we've gained so much more than we've lost. But when you're in it, it's quite difficult to see that. So I thought that was very, very clever of you. I was very impressed. But oh, your you. actual turning point, uh, you read an essay by Laura McCowan, didn't you? We're yes. a great fan of hers as well. So yeah. uh, talk to us about the essay and why it has such a profound effect on you. Sure. So the year before I quit drinking, I started a blog. And at first I was all going gangbusters and posting a new post, you know, almost every other week. And then it started to get more and more time in between each blog post. And so I was sitting on my couch one night and my husband was scrolling through his phone and I was scrolling through my phone and I was looking at Facebook. A friend of mine had, who's in recovery had posted a link to a piece she wrote called Am I an Alcoholic? And it's, it's under a different name in her book, but it also appears in her book. I read it and I was just bowled over and it literally like shot me out of my seat. Like I stood up and I was like, I'm going upstairs to work on my blog. And I ran upstairs and I started working on my latest blog piece. And then I looked up Laura and I started reading more of her work. And I started listening to the home podcast with that Laura and Holly Whitaker used to co-host. It was still, they were still recording episodes at that time because this was five years ago. I made the decision within, I, I think it's like, I say it in the book. It's, it was in like four weeks of having read that piece. I was like, yep, 
I'm quitting. And we had a trip coming up that it was going to be very inconvenient to drink on that trip. And so I was like, okay, this is a perfect time. I don't, I don't need some major wake up call, even though I've had plenty of them in my life. I just needed that one piece to tell me that it was okay to go ahead and quit. And yeah, I did. I, uh, May 12th, five years ago, I quit. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. Fantastic. Well, congratulations. You've, Thank you've you. got through the worst of it now and you've, you've got all the joys to experience. Yes. I was wondering uh, if you struggled in early sobriety because I had a bit of a depression really about four or five months in, I was thinking, oh, you know, this is a bit dull. I'm not <laughs> sure I like it here in Soberland. Did you go through ups and downs? Um, maybe not quite that much. Uh, I was I was super excited about it at first. I know people talk about that pink cloud, um, and I think I was probably on on the pink cloud initially. Uh, but I did I did struggle because my husband still drinks, and um, pretty much all of my friends still drink. My close friends, yeah. There was a lot of fear of missing out, a lot of going to bed while people are still up drinking, opening that next bottle of wine. It was hard in that way. It was also hard because drinking had become so woven into my life. There were some things that I talk about it in the book, like even just sitting outside at a fire pit in the backyard, I was supposed to drink wine. That's what you were supposed to do when you were sitting by the fire. I struggled with a lot of things that I enjoyed doing suddenly weren't as fun anymore. And it it makes you start wondering did I ever like doing this thing or was it yeah. just the alcohol? Yeah, I remember you saying, wasn't it, the red wine goes with sitting inside next to the fire on the white wine. <laughs> yes. Here yeah. in South Africa, we tend it's white wine in the summer, red wine in the winter. Yeah. And so many people have said to me, well, if I stop drinking, how on earth am I going to enjoy watching the sunset? You know, we, we couple all these experiences and it's madness and, yeah. and we have to uncouple them, don't we? And then get used to doing them without the alcohol. And then, you know, maybe we don't actually enjoy some of those things anymore, as you say. And it, it was actually the drink that we were enjoying. Yeah. I mean, five years later, I'm I'm still struggling a little bit with cooking. Like I grew up cooking. I loved cooking, but alcohol became so enmeshed in, in cooking dinner that, you know, I'd have a couple glasses of wine while I was cooking dinner, especially like on Sundays. I liked cooking like these big meals on Sunday. And often I'd be quite drunk by the time we sat down at the table. But I have found that I really don't like cooking as much anymore. And it, it makes me sad because it was it's kind of part of my identity. Like, oh, Lisa mm. loves to cook. She's a good cook. I kind of have to get over the fact that it's it does not bring me as much joy as it used to. And and yeah, that's fine. Yeah. I've I've found yeah. other things. Yeah, that that is quite interesting. The cooking and the glass of wine while you're cooking, it's it's very common. And I don't know if you ever read a book called The Sober Diaries by a British lady called Claire Pooley. If you oh, haven't have... read it, try and get a copy. It's it's a okay. great book. 
And when she was giving up, she was very big on the, the wine and the cooking. So what she used to do is uh, she'd go to bed really early, you know, about eight o'clock with the kids to start with, just so that she wasn't watching TV and drinking. Mm-hmm. And then she, because she'd gone to bed so early, she could wake up really early. So she'd wake up about 5, 6 a.m. And she'd go to the kitchen and cook the evening meal and put it, you know, in the fridge. <laughs> so uh, that was, she had to go to that those lengths to wow. separate the cooking from the from the wine so uh, yeah it's a very common one yeah a, a quote from your book we can be lonely when we're the only person loitering on the outskirts of Drunkland. <laughs> <laughs> but you also say on the positive note that that you you've built up so much emotional and mental strength in sobriety so talk to us a little bit about how we do get stronger Yeah, you know, it occurred to me in sobriety that so often, you know, they call alcohol liquid courage and we we turn to it when we're going through a tough time or when we're having to talk to strangers or it it occurred to me that maybe we are meant to go through these experiences without some kind of liquid assistance because when you do these challenging things and you see that they're not that bad and that you can handle them, it helps you build confidence. And I feel like I went so many years without sort of building this natural and long lasting sense of confidence um, because alcohol just gives you that quick fix. One of my favorite things to do now in sobriety is try new things. So I've been doing all kinds of things. I've been doing aerial yoga and zip lining and cycle class, spin class. I never thought I would like that, but there's a studio really close to us. And I wanted to go somewhere where I knew I would go regularly because it's practically outside my door. I decided to go to an intro class there um, and learn how to do spin class. And I was terrified. I felt so stupid. And and after the intro class, the first time I had to go to a regular class, I was worried I wasn't going to set my bike up right. And, but I had to do it. And it occurred to me when I went through that, I was like, you know, I got a lot of confidence from, from doing something that scared me. I robbed myself of that for so long. Yeah. Well, well, good for you. I I think early sobriety is a great time, as you say, to try lots of things. You know, mm-hmm. some of them we'll, we'll hate, but we'll right. probably find a few things that, that we like doing. Because yep. uh, we always say that we have to learn to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because before, when we were drinking, if we felt, I mean, in my case, if I felt a bit depressed, I'd think, oh, I just need a glass of wine to cheer myself up. You know, it's madness. If I was upset about anything, oh, I'll have, a, I'll have some wine, then I'll stop thinking about it. We just use it as um, it's a kind of easy button, isn't it? Just to yes. bypass our feelings, and we shouldn't be bypassing our feelings because, as you rightly say, that's where we we build our strength through experiencing. Yeah, and the liquid courage thing—it's mad, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I also love what you say about um, the brain on alcohol being a static place, and that that got me thinking because it's a it's a kind of groundhog 
day that we're in, isn't it? When we yes. drink and every day tends to be the same and, you know, it's quite nice, but nothing really evolves, you know, and it made me think of uh, one of our Tribe Sober members who, who really struggled for a year, but she kept at it, kept at it, and now she she's sober and she's uh, moved to the UK, you know, with her, her young son and she never would have done that if she was drinking, you know, yep. she had to sort out visas and get a mm -hmm. job and a nursery there was so much to do and she never would have held it all together if she was still drinking so we we put our lives on hold don't we sometimes yeah and I would I would find myself when I would get drunk revisiting those same grudges in my head and getting mad at the same people over and over again um, it was like putting on your favorite this is going to date me, but putting on your favorite record. One more time, let's listen to all those, those old grudges. Absolutely. So five years sober now, Lisa. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Thank um, you. How, how would you summarize the benefit? I've gained an incredible amount of time. So all the time I spent drinking, not to mention the time I spent thinking about drinking and the time I spent recovering from drinking, and then the time I spent negotiating with myself. Like, am I going to drink tonight? Am I going to drink tomorrow night? Well, I'm going to drink on Saturday. So maybe I shouldn't drink tonight. Like all of that, like headspace, it clears, it clears up time, energy, and headspace. And it's, it's allowed me to do so many things. No one in my family thought I had a problem, even though they saw me get like pretty drunk regularly. <laughs> I think it was right around eight months I was out with my husband and he said, you know, I don't think you needed to quit. I said, well, I had just taken this writing course, this big six month writing course, which actually started the, the long process of writing this book. I had also started doing Pilates and doing yoga. And I said to him, I said, do you think I would have done all of those things if I was still drinking? And he thought about it for a second. And he said, no, you wouldn't have done those things. I said, well, I think that's a problem. I'm glad that I gave myself the chance to find out what I would do in sobriety. Like, I think a lot of people quit for 30 days. I don't think that that's, I mean, I think it's a great initial way of finding out how, like how good your body can feel without alcohol. I think you need to give it longer to find out, like, how are you going to really live once, yeah. once you quit? And I think people would be pleasantly surprised by all the things that they're, they will find themselves doing. Yeah. You know, your story about the writing and your, your writing course makes me think of Claire Pooley again, uh, mm -hmm. this author. What she did is she wrote a blog called Mummy is a Secret Drinker, something like that. And mm -hmm. every day that she, uh, she started blogging the day she stopped drinking and mm -hmm. she wrote it every day. She wasn't really expecting anyone to read it, right. but it got a huge amount of hits, you know, because she writes very well. And then eventually a publisher uh, approached her and said, we love your blog. Uh, we want to make it into a book. So obviously she was very pleased and excited about that. But uh, it meant she had to come out, you know, mm. she talks about how she was at the school gates and realized mm. that all the other mums had, had read this book. But uh, the point is that Claire, ever since she was a child, she always wanted to be an author. It was mm -hmm. a childhood dream. And then she ended up becoming a, an executive in a, a marketing agency and developing a corporate career. Mm -hmm. And then she had three children, so busy, busy, busy. Mm -hmm. And then uh, she gave up work because she couldn't do all the juggling anymore. And, you know, she was drinking more, being at home, putting on weight, not at all happy. 
And then she decided to give up drinking and did the blog, published the Sober Diaries. And then she went on a, a serious six-month course or something, like very much like the one you've just done probably. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, she's just about to uh, publish her second novel, you know. and she, So her, her dreams are coming true now. So mm -hmm. I just love her story and, and I think it happens to many of us. It's, uh, you know, I say to people when you're drinking, think ahead 10 years and, you know, if you're lucky, <laughs> mm -hmm. you've got a yeah. health problem your life will be pretty much the same but if you give up drinking mm -hmm. it's like an adventure isn't it you've no idea what might happen if yes. you just give it a chance just yes. get it out of your life and, and give it a chance absolutely so I know that you're keen on exercise and aerial yoga, which is very impressive because I do yoga and I remember going into the studio one day and saying, what on earth are all those things on mm -hmm. the ceiling? So that must be aerial yoga. So um, you're keen on exercise. And what other tips would you give somebody that's struggling a bit, that's in early sobriety? What What's worked well for you? Well, definitely writing. Um, you can you can journal. Your writing doesn't have to be meant for anyone else to see. But if you do think that you might want to make it public one day, you can write with that intention. But I, I started writing my book this second time when I started working on it. I had to write it for myself first. I, I had to work through those issues and get them down on paper. I highly recommend writing if if you're not the kind of person who can just figure out what to sit down and write about. There's a lot of great journals out now with prompts in them. Glennon Doyle has one. I believe it's Rebecca Walker has another one called What's Your Story? I also recommend just getting outside in nature whenever you can. Um, I'm very lucky that we we live in this beautiful place where I can walk out my backyard and walk on a trail. Um, so I, I realize some people have to travel a bit in order to spend some time in nature, but it's, it's really beneficial. It helps you realize how you're part of something much bigger and it forces you to sort of live in the moment. If you can put your phone down, I struggle with that too. Sometimes putting my phone down when I'm outside. Well, let's talk about your book. I love the title and you, you explain, don't you, about unfurling the alcohol strand and then you were able to see what else needed unfurling so talk yes. to us about the title and how that sure. came about well when I first quit I remember there was one evening I was standing in the kitchen and I was sort of dancing around to music and the word unfurling came into my head and I was like it this feels like an unfurling it feels like I've been tightly bound up for so long by alcohol and anxiety and self-doubt. And suddenly I had been given or I had given myself permission to start unfurling. And I had a, a little fun with the metaphor in the book, thinking of how the seeds of my self-doubt were planted when I was a child and how um, I just became, you know, more and more tightly wound over the years. And now that I'm in this process of unfurling, it's up to me to tend my garden and to make sure that I'm keeping things properly fertilized. I don't think I actually go that far with the metaphor. I don't think I use the word fertilize, <laughs> but but it's it's such an experience because I think sometimes we think, okay, well, I've quit drinking, so I've done what I needed to do and I'm done. But 
it's really just the beginning. And it's a process of getting to know yourself. Sometimes you discover that there are other things underneath the drinking, other bad habits, other coping mechanisms that need some unwinding. I mean, if you do it right, it's a never ending process. And you continue to learn things about yourself and learn things about other people and the world. And it's it's a really beautiful experience. I'm, I'm so glad that I was able to give myself this gift. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a journey of self-discovery, isn't it? Yes. And I think your metaphor works really well and the, the flowering thing. And it's, it's freedom, isn't it? I mean, it's not easy to do. And in my experience and the people that I work with, you know, if, if you really give it your all in, in three to six months, you can change your behaviors and, and stop drinking, basically. But as you said, not drinking is only the beginning of it. It's mm-hmm. not as if you just live the same life without alcohol in it. It's, it's right. something new. Something new starts. Mm-hmm. It's, it's exciting. So how can people buy your book, Lisa? It is available on Amazon as well as um, Apple Books and Google Play Books and Kobo and Barnes and Noble. You can get it in both ebook and paperback on Amazon. It's also, um, if you go to my website, which is lisamaybennett.com, and that's May like the month, I have the links to all the different places where it's sold. The full title is My Unfurling Emerging from the Grip of Anxiety, Self Doubt, and Drinking. I'm really excited. It's getting out there. And you had asked what helps in those early days of sobriety. And for me, reading was so important, reading books, reading blogs, listening to podcasts like yours. It's so important to know that you're not alone, joining Facebook groups, um, following Instagram accounts. Like there's there's a huge community out there When I first quit five years ago, it was just starting to grow Mm -hmm. and it's, it's really exploded in these last five years. Um, There's so much support out there um, and so many wonderful books. Actually, Claire's book has been on my to read list for a long time. I I can't believe I haven't gotten around to it yet. So now I will definitely have to read it. Yeah. I think reading the quit lit as we call it, Mm -hmm. listening to podcasts, just immerse yourself in it. And Mm -hmm. there is so much to learn. I mean, I had no idea when I was drinking just how bad it was for my, my brain and my Mm -hmm. body. I think once we start educating ourselves, the desire to drink also decreases a little bit. We realize, you know, that we're playing with fire, especially as we get older. Yes. So, in fact, you've published your book at about your five-year soberversary, I think, haven't you? Which I think is lovely. And it's quite a coincidence because I launched my podcast on my fifth-year soberversary. Oh, that's wonderful. I think it's so nice to do something like that to, to mark it. But yeah, sobriety has become so accessible, hasn't it? When I stopped, you know, seven years ago, there was Mm -hmm. hardly any support. It was AA. That's why I went to AA. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have done. So now there's so much online support and so many groups around. It's it's much, much easier. And also, I don't know about where you live, but I imagine that you have plenty of nice alcohol-free drinks as well. I mean, that's relatively recent. Yes. You know, it's funny. When I was in my first year of sobriety, I wrote and I posted it on Medium. I wrote an open letter to bars and restaurants, like begging them to offer more creative options. Because I would go out for a nice dinner and I would say, what do you have? We used to call them mocktails back then. I don't think we do that anymore. 
people would say, oh, well, we have lemonade and ginger ale, you know, and club soda. And I wanted something that was like sophisticated and, you know, that challenged my taste buds a little bit. Sometimes a bartender would make something on the fly for me, um, but a lot of them just looked at me like they couldn't imagine how to mix a drink without alcohol in it. Yeah. <laughs> and what what are you doing in a bar anyway? Yeah. Is their attitude sometimes. I'll tell you a really funny quick story. Um, my husband and I went out for our anniversary. When the waiter came at the beginning of the night, I said, "Do you have any alcohol-free drinks?" This was early on and they just brought me like a strawberry lemonade and I didn't want something that like a kid would drink. And when we had made the reservation, we had told them that it was our anniversary. So after the dinner, when they brought the dessert, they brought two glasses of champagne for us. Even though I had asked at the beginning for an alcohol-free drink and I was just like, oh my gosh. And I immediately slid it across the table to my husband and I'm like, here, you can have both glasses. But it's it's really changed. This is another thing that has really changed in the last five years is the alcohol-free menu um, at restaurants and bars has, has really expanded and it's been a, a nice development. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Yeah. Do you have a favorite alcohol-free drink? Well, I love kombucha. And I know that it's a little controversial with some people because it does have like some trace amounts of alcohol in it. I love kombucha. Not enough. To me, not enough restaurants and bars sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- but there's a million brands out there now. Um, every yeah, grocery. Uh, and it's actually quite good for you, isn't it? It's good for the guts, I think. Yes. And when we drink a lot over decades, we've, we've damaged our, our guts. So it's a very good thing, I think, for for us to do in sobriety yes. to drink that. But I also think, you know, there's something about the, the fake wine. I, I always say we should look at the drinks in three categories. You know, we've got the alcohol and then we've got like the Coca-Cola and your mm-hmm. strawberry lemonade and the mm-hmm. kids' drinks. Mm-hmm. And then we've got alcohol-free drinks. So yeah. we've got to look at them with a, a curious approach, I think, and experiment because yeah. we've we've got an online store here, Drink Nil Cozart, give them a shout out. Mm-hmm. And they've got more than a hundred alcohol-free choices and they deliver to your door. So oh, I could wow. work my way through those and, and there's so many nice ones. So I think it's important to experiment because you're, you're bound to be able to find something that, that suits you. So final question, Lisa, if someone's listening to this and they know that they need to quit, but they just don't know where to start, you know, and it's so difficult to get started, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've given people quite a few clues, I think, but can you think of anything to to say to really encourage them to, to give it a try? Well, it's great that they're already listening to your podcast. Um, So that's, that's an important first step because I've, I've found that the people who get on the Facebook groups and comment, I'm like, you know what? You might be struggling, but you're here. Like that's yeah. so many people don't even make it that far. I think just reading. And if if you do want to look for one of these 30 day or 60 day challenges, I think those are a great way to start. There's there's a lot of them out there now. Just do a Google search. The The folks on some of these Facebook groups are really supportive. I've found it rare that people like judge each other when they admit that they, you know, slipped and relapsed. I find for the most part, everyone is is really supportive and understanding. There's two things I hope that people get out of my book, in addition to the idea that you don't have to be, have your life falling apart in order to quit drinking. 
I also want people to know that asking for help and seeking out support does not mean that you are weak or soft. Looking for help is, I don't know how we get better without leaning on other people. I mean, it's its just one of the things that we're meant to do in this world um, is work together and, and share our knowledge and share our experience with each other. I would just say to folks that don't be afraid to, to look for help. Don't be afraid to look inside as well. One of the things that we have to do when we're recovering is look at our thoughts and our feelings and our behaviors and our patterns. And I think our society sometimes treats looking inside as being narcissistic or self-absorbed. I really don't think there's any way to, to do this without examining yourself. Again, I would say, um, don't let that stop you. Um, don't let some of our society's more negative attitudes stop you from, from trying to recover. Yeah, that, that's great advice, Lisa. Yeah, I, I think the hardest bit of the whole thing actually is reaching out. You know, it's mm -hmm. accepting that you've got to make a change, mm -hmm. reaching out for help. But like you, you know, I found that the people in the recovery community are so warm and so supportive. You know, I've been running our chat room for six years now. And I, th I, th I think maybe two or three times there was a bit of friction, mm -hmm. but usually people are, they're so happy for each other when it's mm -hmm. going well. And if they slip, you know, they're so encouraging, well, just, mm -hmm. you know, try again and you'll be fine this time. And it's, it's quite restored my faith in human nature, actually, <laughs> the recovery community. It's, it's a beautiful yes. place to be. So if anyone's hesitant and thinking that, you know, we're all terribly serious, and judgmental mm -hmm. <laughs> please don't right come on in yeah and try you know you can always go back to drinking can't you exactly but i've never met anybody that stopped drinking that said i wish i hadn't stopped drinking have mm -hmm. you <laughs> no 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 it doesn't happen does it? <laughs> no. thank you so much lisa let's pull out a few of the great points you made in there lisa began drinking in her teens and says that her first six years of drinking created deep pathways in her brain. She was experiencing that heady combination of being away from home, having access to cheap alcohol, together with the fact that she was a bit shy, meant drinking was an ideal way to connect and fit in with the other students. On reflection, Lisa realises she could have done so much better at college if she hadn't been partying quite so much. After college, she went to live in the heart of New York City, where the party continued. So easy to go out drinking and pour herself into a cab to get home at the end of the evening. She left New York at the age of 29 with a very well-established drinking habit. Three or four nights out a week was the norm, and like many of us, Lisa discovered she didn't have an off switch. She ended up in an AA meeting as research for a work-related project. That experience simply confirmed to her that she was not an alcoholic and she didn't relate to any of the people there, so she had a drink on the way home to celebrate. This also happened to me, and with hindsight, we agreed that we shouldn't be comparing ourselves with the hardcore alcoholics of AA. We should be comparing ourselves with the very best version of ourselves that we could be. Quite simply, alcohol will prevent us from reaching our potential in life. Going back to Lisa, she of course tried to moderate. She set and broke the rules many times. 
We talked about rock bottoms and how crazy it is to wait for that rock bottom. The trick is to get off that slippery slope the moment you realise you're on it. We talked about wake-up calls. As she reached her 40s, Lisa found she could no longer predict the effect that a few drinks was going to have on her. I also experienced that and now realise it's a real warning sign of dependence. She told us a story about how a relatively modest amount of alcohol had led her to being blackout drunk, which ended up with her throwing charcoal up at her bedroom window to wake up her husband in the early hours of the morning. As she puts it, she'll never forget the disappointed look on her husband's face as he had to come downstairs to let her in. We talked of the difficulty of being a woman who drinks. We can't get too drunk because that's not cool. But if we don't drink, then we're just no fun. In fact, when she was a few months into sobriety, Lisa's husband told her that he didn't think she had to give up drinking completely. So then she began to remind him of all the things that she'd started doing since she stopped drinking. And he conceded that, yes, it was the right thing for her. This attitude of well-meaning friends and family is another reason why we need a sober community. They'll just tell us to cut down, not realising that we've crossed the line into dependence and cutting down is just not an option anymore. Go to tribesober.com and hit the Join Our Tribe button if you need a community who understands what it's like to have tried and failed to cut down over and over again. One day, Lisa very wisely realised she was getting no joy from her drinking anymore and that it was taking away far more than it was giving her. For many of us, it actually takes a period of sobriety for us to realise that we gain so much more than we lose when we ditch the booze. So well done to Lisa for having that insight when she was still drinking. Lisa's turning point was reading an essay by Laura McCowan called Am I an Alcoholic? I'll put the link in the show notes in case that's your turning point. We're great fans of Laura here at Tribe Sober and her book title, We Are the Luckiest, just about sums up how we feel once we've ditched the booze and learnt to thrive in our sobriety. Like all of us, Lisa had to do the work in early sobriety. Her husband and friends were still drinking, so she would often go to bed early when the socialising just got too difficult. She also had to work on uncoupling everyday experiences from alcohol. As she put it, alcohol was so woven into her daily life that she was not entirely sure whether she enjoyed various activities or if she just enjoyed the alcohol that went along with them. For example, she always thought she enjoyed cooking and in fact it was part of her identity that Lisa was a good cook. But once she removed the wine from her cooking experience, she realised that wasn't really her passion at all. This raises a really interesting point about how we lose touch with what we really like to do when we drink. For example, you may discover that your drinking buddies are not that fascinating after all, and that you'd rather be learning to do something creative rather than spending yet another evening with them. Sobriety really is a journey of self-discovery. Bumpy at first, but then full of joy. It's an unfurling of who we really are. Lisa explained that she's built a lot of emotional strength in sobriety. By pushing out of her comfort zone and engaging in new activities, or just by learning how to socialise sober. 
She's gained so much confidence in these last few years. Confidence that non-drinkers would have built up at a much younger age. Alcohol saps our motivation to feel the fear and do it anyway, to quote one of my favourite book titles. We stay trapped in our boozy little rut. Lisa's been trying so many new things since she got sober. Aerial yoga, spinning classes, creative writing, and she's written and published a book. Her accomplishments are a reminder that we'll never reach our potential in life if we're drinking. As she says, I'm so glad I gave myself a chance to see just what I could do in sobriety. I asked her for some tips for newbies and she suggested journaling. Obviously not everybody is a writer like Lisa, but she recommends getting some journal prompts from somebody like Glennon Doyle. Getting outside in nature is essential. It helps us to realise that we're part of something so much bigger and to be in the moment. She also recommended doing a challenge and finding Facebook groups, which means I'm going to give ours a plug. We've got a brand new Facebook group called Sober Sprinters, where we hosted our recent five-day sober sprint. That sprint is over now, but there's so much engagement in there, we decided to keep it open as a home for all future challenges. Just search Sober Sprinters in Facebook and come join the conversation. Lisa's book is called Unfurling and she describes how different aspects of her life unfurled as she quit drinking. It's available on Amazon and you can also find it on her website which is called lisamaybennett.com. I love Lisa's book and her story of her time in New York as a 20-something made me think of all those cocktails we used to watch them drinking in Sex and the City. We both agreed that stopping drinking was just the beginning and that's what makes this decision to quit such a game changer. It really does alter the trajectory of your future. So let me end with a member message from one of our chat rooms. This one came from one of our Australian members, Trish, complete with a beautiful photograph. She says... This is my birthplace, Longreach, way out in the middle of our wide brown land. I'm so happy to be back and to be doing it alcohol-free. If you'd asked me eight months ago if I could survive a trip like this with our group of friends, I would have found it laughable. But I've done it and I've enjoyed it. And I've finally crossed over from wishing I could drink to being certain that I wouldn't actually do it, not wanting to drink a noxious chemical which deadens the senses. A few times this trip, I've been aware that I feel lighter, more alive. I've put it down to the clean, fresh air of the country, but yesterday it dawned on me. I'm sober. I'm neither slightly anxious from last night's drinking, focused on today's drinking, or fatigued from drinking, and as a result, crap sleep. I'm sober, that's the difference. So if you're struggling or questioning your resolve, and you will for a while, just hold on, the magic is coming. Oh, thank you, Trish. That's a beautiful message, and it's exactly what people in early sobriety will need to hear. So that's it from me, guys. Please go to tribesober.com and take a look at our kickstart course. It could be just what you need. I'll be back next week, and thanks so much for listening. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. 
Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.